Thanks be to God. And thanks be to Jacob as well for reading. Just in case uh, you hadn't already worked it out, the uh, Bible text that Jacob just read was, was on the back of the sheet, so you can follow along there, and we'll be making reference to it. So hang on. Um, <clears throat> we, we, uh, for those of you who are visiting, uh, you're, you're, I know you're sort of parachuting in, um, really two-thirds of the way through this series that we've been doing together as a church through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church uh, in Philippi. Um, so... If you, if you want to catch up, you can certainly go online and listen to the sermons that are there if you want to. Um, but anyway, hopefully what we'll say tonight will be um, fairly easy to, to connect with. You know, sometimes people think uh, that being a Christian is all about making a decision, praying a prayer, and then you're a Christian. Um, and then maybe get on with some religious activities. But by and large, make a decision to become a Christian and then wait for heaven. And the sort of the gap in between those two events, yeah, you can fill with doing some charity or something. But in general, that's it. Um, maybe you know Christians who, who, who are like that and perhaps their lives don't really change much from their decision become a Christian to their death or the future. And we saw last week that according to the Apostle Paul, we are made right with God by our faith in Jesus Christ. We are made acceptable before God by Christ and what he's done and us receiving that by faith. But it seems to be that other people in the day that Paul wrote, and in our own day as well, misapply this amazing truth, this amazing truth of our righteousness by faith in Christ. They will say that our righteousness in Christ is so great, so wonderful, and indeed it is, that we don't need to do anything else because we're already right in God's eyes. We're already saved. So there's not really much motivation, there's not much need to do anything else. If anything, you can go and live as you were beforehand. Nothing needs to change, really, because Christ has done it all. So therefore, chill, wait for heaven. There was certainly a group in the early church that took this idea to the extreme. And we'll see that as we go through this, this passage that Jacob just read to us. This idea that it's all about Christ and therefore we don't need to do anything in response. But Paul anticipates this problem, and he describes what a Christian life should look like. Now, this is a kind of an interesting study. Um, if you are a Christian and you want to know more about what it's like to be a Christian or, or, or live the Christian life, um, then certainly this is, this is something we need to listen to and really take the words of Paul very seriously over the next few minutes. Maybe you're not a Christian, uh, but maybe you're interested in what it is to be a Christian and you want to know and, 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 and you're investigating the claims of Christ. And it's important to know what you're letting yourself in for so that you can make a, an informed decision um, in the future. But anyway, Paul, uh, in this section we've just read, uh, describes or defines the Christian life. And we're going to think of this in, in three headings. Number one, he, he defines and describes the substance of the Christian life, number one. Number two, he then takes on this sort of parody of the Christian life. 
And thirdly and finally, he comes to the outcome of the Christian life, where this is all heading to. So he wants to be really clear, number one, on the substance of the Christian life. So great a righteousness from Christ that some say we're already perfect, so therefore there's no point. But Paul gets straight onto the case and says, no, that is not true. Look down at verse 12 in our passage this evening. He says, quite clearly, after talking about this amazing righteousness that's available in Christ, not that I have already obtained this, he says. He's referring to this resurrection from the dead. I've already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, he says. Later on in verse 13, just to be clear, he sort of underscores it again. I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's emphatic in, in, in the opening verses in this passage. For those who think that perfection in this life is possible and can be achieved in its fullness, Paul says, no, that's not the case. Because if you think like that, as we'll see in a few moments, you'll lead to some very wrong conclusions and some very wrong lifestyles. Yes, Paul says, Christ is all. Yes, he says, our righteousness that Christ achieved on our behalf, given to us, received through the gift of faith, is enough. It makes us righteous before the Father forever. Yes, he says, faith. But no, we are not yet perfect. We will one day be perfect, but that time has not arrived yet. And so he writes to describe and define the substance of the Christian life. And when I say substance here, I'm not referring to the outward factors that you and I might look at somebody and say, oh yes, they're living as a Christian, they're giving to charity, they're doing religious things. No, no, no. Not the outward factors, but the substance, the stuff it's made up out of, the, what it consists of. It's character. And so he uses a number of, of sort of uh, verbs uh, to, to describe what Paul sees as the substance of the Christian life. He says uh, in verse 13, sorry, verse 14, I press on towards the goal. He says in verse 13, I strain forwards. Before that he says, I forget what was behind. And then again, he says, I press on. This is all describing the Christian life. And, and, and it's clear, isn't it, that Paul understands it to be an active, a continual, a daily striving and struggling. Sweat and energy are expended. Action defines the Christian life. It is a full-bodied commitment to something. But he goes on. He takes it further. It is not just a general expenditure of energy as if you get saved when you receive Christ by faith and you just get busy doing something it doesn't really matter what. No, no, no. Paul and his life and what he's teaching shows that you're straining and struggling and pushing forward to something, a purpose. It has a goal in mind. Commentators on this passage generally are in agreement that Paul is using the metaphor or language from athletics the language of someone, you know, maybe describing somebody in a race, running around the track, going for the finishing line. And in some ways, the Christian life is like that. It's like a, like a competition. What is the goal that he 
has in mind. What is the finishing line for the Christian? Well, we saw a bit of this last week in chapter 3, verse 8. That I may gain Christ. Or again, that I may know Christ. That I may own him. Even the resurrection from the dead that Paul sort of finished our, last, our passage on last week, that, that is not the end in itself. The only reason, that, well, one of the reasons that we are resurrected from the dead, according to Paul, is so that we may know Christ in fullness. One day, perfectly know him. And a required step for that is that we have resurrection from the dead. So here we have Paul in his Christian life. He, he is running, he is striving forward to, to receive the prize, the call of God in, in Jesus Christ in its fullness, in its completion. This, according to Paul, is the substance of the Christian faith, the Christian life. Straining forward to, to claim, to receive Christ. Because for Paul, to know Christ, to have him, to gain him, to be found in him is the, is the highest calling. It is the greatest joy. And so he's running. How does he do this? How does he strive? Well, he says two things in verse 13. Number one, he says, it's part of this, part of this forward motion. I'm, I'm straining forward to the finishing line. Number one, he says in verse 13, one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. It's part of his straining and struggling forward. Forgetting what lies behind. Actually, the word forgetting, the verb forgetting is in the present tense. Which means that it's not something that he did an action of forgetting in the past and now he doesn't need to do it anymore. No, no, no. It's in the present tense, which means that Paul, in his Christian life, and his struggle and his strain is actively, continually forgetting. It's not a one-off event. Forgetting the stuff in the past. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you'll know that he is a very colourful individual. What a, what a past he had. He'd done some terrible things in the past, thinking he was doing the right things. But as he now knows, we're, we're terrible. He persecuted the church of Christ. He dragged off Christians and that led to them probably being imprisoned or being killed or terrible things. He had some other regrettable moments even after he came to faith in Christ. This big bust up between him and Barnabas a disagreement so severe, so deep, that they could not work together any longer. Barnabas had to go this way, Paul had to go that way, they couldn't work together. What a past Paul had. And these things in his mind, unless he does something about it, these things will distract him from the end goal. They'll slow him down, they'll, they'll weigh him down. And so he actively forgets Forgetting what lies behind. But for Paul, it's not only the bad things that he has to struggle to forget every day, but it's the good things as well. Because up until this moment, and this is towards the end of his career when he, he wrote this, we're not sure how many years left he, he lived, but he certainly lived a very full life. As an apostle, he planted many churches, he preached the good news across the known world. 
Many, many thousands, tens of thousands of people had heard of the, the good news of Christ through his ministry. He has to forget those things as well. His good achievements. Not disregard them, not fail to thank God for what he's done, but forget them insofar as if he doesn't, he'll dwell on them. He'll lean on those things. They are just as able as the negative things, his sins, his regrettable moments to slow him down. He can become enamored or overawed with, with his performance and his fruit. So whether it's the good things or the bad things, he has to choose to forget an active, continual forgetting of what lies behind. That's the first part, he says, of the substance of the Christian life. Before we move on to the, the second part, we need to ask ourselves the question, is there something that we are being held back from? Something in our past that is holding us back as, as, as believers in Christ from pressing on? Maybe something weighing heavily. Something pulling you down. Something just slowing down your pursuit of Christ. Maybe you believe in Jesus. You believe in the good news. But there's just something you cannot leave. Maybe it's a sin that you have done. Or maybe it's a sin that someone has done against you. Maybe it's weighing you down. Could even be, like Paul, a success in religious terms. Maybe some achievement in ministry, some uh, salvation uh, of another person that the, the, the God in his grace was pleased to use you to achieve the, the, the coming to faith of some other person. And maybe that's something that you keep, that holds you back. Praise be to God if that has been the case, but maybe that has helped you lose focus. Maybe you, like Paul, have to engage, as we all do, in active forgetting. You've got to remind yourself to forget, if that's not a bit topsy-turvy. It's a battle. It's a strain, isn't it? Maybe there's an area in your past that you need to allow God, the Holy Spirit, to work in, to apply the gospel very deeply to. As we, as we come to the end of our service, we're going to pray for that, for help to do that. So part of the substance of the Christian life, according to Paul, is actively forgetting what lies behind. But forgetting alone is not sufficient it's straining forward as well. He says in verse 13, uh, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Again, we get this picture of the athlete using every ounce of strength to cross the finishing line, straining every muscle fiber just to get across to claim the prize, giving it everything you've got. This is what the Christian life looks like, according to Paul. I wonder how 
much your Christian life or your Christian experience can be understood in these terms. Straining forward for Christ. Do you give it all you've got to know Christ, to learn Christ, to commune with Christ? Or is there some work you need to do in this area? Maybe just to borrow from the Apostle John some words. We strain forward because Christ strained for us. Look down at verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. See, Paul sees the the context of the Christian life, the substance, the straining, this working forward, only possible, only motivated because Christ Jesus struggled for us. We see our efforts in the light of what Christ has done for us. When we see what Christ did to make me his own, to make you his own, to, to be with us, the incredible lengths that Christ went to, even death on a cross. What kind of person does that? Paul glimpsed something of the love and the power and the tenderness of Christ at the moment of his conversion. And he spent the rest of his life, every second he had, straining forward to get more, more of Christ. That's why he runs. That's why he struggles to know Christ. Paul says in verse 15, if you think this way, that's a sign of your maturity. You are a mature thinker. He goes on to say, yeah, we can, we can disagree about other points, other minor points of application. God will reveal that to you. But on this, on this single-minded pursuit of Jesus, the struggling forward, daily choosing to forget the things that hold you back, daily choosing to strain forward to him. On this, he says to the church, we've got to be on the same page. We've got to keep running, he says. We've got to hold true in verse 16. We've got to stay on track. This is the substance of the Christian life. Let no one be under any illusions. But see, Paul tells the church all this stuff here because it seems to be that there is a threat to this teaching. He moves on then from the describing and laying out the substance of the Christian life and then he moves to this, this parody of the Christian life. And this, this isn't just some sort of random idea that Paul is having just to sort of enforce what he's saying in in this letter. No, it seems to be that there was actual uh, teaching or false teachers doing the rounds in this day, teaching something opposite to what Paul is saying. And so he then turns his attention to this parody of the Christian life, this sort of fake version of the Christian life. And it's not just a, a joke or something that he dismisses without thinking too much about it. This, according to Paul, this parody of the Christian life that the Philippian church were were about to hear if they hadn't heard it already, was a deep and dangerous perversion of the real thing. 
That is why he calls the brothers and the sisters, the, the community of faith, to join, he says in verse 17, in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to my example. Look at, look at me, he says. This isn't, this isn't because Paul is so big and so awesome and he's an apostle. And look at me, everybody. It's not arrogance. I mean, he, he acknowledges in verse 12 and 13, we've just seen he's not perfect. He hasn't attained it. He knows that. But, he says, as one who struggles and strives and runs with all his might to, to know Christ, to know him better, imitate me. Imitate my, my beliefs and my doctrines, yes, my teaching, but also imitate my behavior, my lifestyle, my attitudes. Why? Why should they do that? Well, look down at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He tells them now with tears. This isn't just a trivial thing for Paul. This is something that evokes deep grievance and sadness and emotion. Because there is a group of people who walk as enemies of the cross. Imitate me, he says. Otherwise, you might end up imitating them. Why, why would a church... Why would any group of Christians make that mistake of imitating enemies of the cross of Christ? Surely it would be obvious. Well, firstly, Paul is not talking here about a group of people who are outsiders, who are unbelievers out there in the world. He's already dealt with them in chapter 1, verse 27 and following. This is not them. He is dealing with another group of people entirely different. He is dealing with a group of people who go by the name of Christian. A group of people here who profess the gospel. A group of people who give assent to the right beliefs. And yet they are enemies of the gospel that they profess. They are, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And you can tell by their lives and their behavior. Yes, they might sound very convincing, church. They might sound very Christian. They use just the right amount of Bible to convince many that they are legitimate believers themselves. Maybe they've even managed to convince themselves. But yet, says Paul, when you look at their lives and their behaviours and their values, they are so far out of step with the substance of the Christian life I've just told you about. That it evokes tears. Tragic weeping. Let's learn a little more about this group that Paul is talking about. Verse 19. He says their end is destruction first of all he gets right to it the direction they're heading is to destruction uh, he's already used this word to describe the eternal fate of the unbeliever uh, earlier on in, in his letter so as far as Paul is concerned that's where they're heading eternal destruction but he says that God is their belly Again, 
radically different from the kind of Christian life that Paul has just been talking about. There's no sense of striving in these people for Christ. There's no struggling towards him. There's no sweating. There's no self-denial. For these people, their God is their bellies. Their highest source of authority is their appetites, is their desires. Ultimately, these people are mastered by their desires and, and life for them and their teaching is all about satisfying those desires, not pursuing Christ. And if you, if you burrow down deep enough, you will see a lust for, for all sorts of desires, power and influence and wealth and, and sexual fulfillment and, 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 and all sorts of things. This is what you will see in the lives and the behaviours of these people who call themselves Christians, who walk, though, as enemies of the cross. They're driven by their desires. By the way, you know, in terms of Christianity, desires and appetites are good things in general. They are part of our creation, the way God has created us as human beings to, to, to desire and to have appetites that are, that are met and fulfilled, that, that we embrace with joy and thanks. That's a good thing. We're not denying that at all. But for the Christian, the person in Christ, we're not to be ruled by our desires. We're not to serve them. We bring all things under Christ. It's just that not all appetites are to be indulged. Some are harmful. And so we deny ourselves. Yet for this group of people that Paul is talking about, they show no such restraints. Finally, he caps it off. Their glory is in their shame. There's a total inversion of the moral compass. They're mixed up. What we call bad, they call good. What we say is dark, they call light. What we think is shameful, says Paul, they will revel in and celebrate. You can see in this parody of the Christian life how far away that is from Paul's ideal, the substance of the Christian life. But yet perhaps you can start to see how attractive that could be for new believers. Yeah, 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 come to Christ. Yeah, yeah, believe, believe this stuff. We believe that too. No problem. And yet you can believe that and have these things too. How attractive that is to immature believers. He sums it up at the end of verse 19. Their minds are set on earthly things. They basically live as if this life is all there is. Yeah, they give word to God. and Yeah, they say they believe this stuff here. But they live as if this is it. As if material gain and power and conquests, that's the only thing. But yet the Christian mind in com comparison is set on the upward call of God in Christ. He's saying this to the church and he's saying this to us because we need to be aware of these dangers ourselves. Not everything that goes under the term Christian is Christian. There are many false pretenders out there. There are many wolves in sheep's clothing. But the point is they're in sheep's clothing. They look like one of us. And so we pay attention. We must pay attention to one another, but those out there, teachers particularly, not just to what they say they believe in and the confessions of faith they sign off to, but we look at their lives. We look at their behaviours. And we ask, do the, do the two things match up? 
Are they living out what accords with sound doctrine? Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul, Paul uh, talks about the kind of qualities that he wants from church leaders. And it's amazing, when you read that list of qualities, you will see that it's a list predominantly of their behavior. Yet we, we, we take for granted that they believe the right stuff, but yet how are they living? What does their life demonstrate? Likewise, as a church, when we walk into church membership later this year, and particularly when we start thinking about elders and spiritual leaders for our, for our church, we pay attention not just to what we believe in, although that's crucially important, but we pay close attention to the way that we live our lives before affirming one another. Does the life and the profession match up? Because there is a lot of junk out there. You don't have to do too much research online uh, on, on Christian TV or Christian books or Christian conferences to know that the, not everything that's called Christian is Christian. But one test to arm yourself against this is to ask this question. Do the Christian teachers that you're watching, listening to, reading about, do they imitate Paul in what he's just saying here? Do they live as single-minded, zealous believers for Christ? Is Christ the ultimate content of their communication, of their teaching? Or is there some other focus? Are they living lives straining towards Christ? Or are they living lives that are more defined by luxury and wealth and fame and influence? So we've seen Paul describe the substance of the Christian life. We've seen him then sort of compare and contrast the, the parody of the Christian life that was doing the rounds then and it's doing the rounds today as well. And so finally he comes to the outcome of the Christian life. This is where everything is, is heading towards. He continues this comparison between the real and fake versions of the Christian life. And he says there is one sign that is ultimate that you will really know where people are at. Verse 19, we've just read it. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. The, the actual city of Philippi, where, where this church was based, that Paul was writing to, itself um, was designated a Roman colony in 43 BC by the emperor Octavian. And it's the highest honor that could have been bestowed on any part of land or any country within the Roman Empire as it stood in those days. And you see, the thing was that the Philippi was quite a long way away from Rome. And yet because of this status that it was designated as, it was treated as an annex or an extension of the mother city of Rome. So if you were born in Philippi, you were automatically a Roman citizen. You were treated as if you were from Rome. The same privileges as any Roman citizen you had if you were born and if you were from Philippi. So the people of Philippi, the city itself, they knew what it was like to be a citizen of a different land. 
They lived in Philippi, but actually they were citizens of Rome. And so in the same way, Paul points to this. And he says, Christians also know what it's like to be a citizen in a foreign land. Except that land isn't Rome, it's not the city of Rome. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. It's the heavenly realm. I know you're you're physically here, but you actually belong there. You're a subject of a different sphere of sovereignty with the head of state that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour. And it's him you're waiting for. It is him that you're pressing on towards. And so the outcome of the Christian life we see in verse 21. This Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come from the homeland and he will transform our lowly body. That is the ultimate outcome of the Christian life. This word lowly body literally is the body of our humiliation. And is that which is transformed, according to Paul. It is the body of our weakness. It is the body that is subject to sin and the effects of sin. It is the body that is decaying. That becomes ever increasingly clear to you the older you get that your body is decaying and frail. And yet this body will be transformed, he says in verse 21, to be like his glorious body. Like his, referring to Jesus, the risen, resurrected, exalted, resplendent Son of God. The outcome of the Christian life is that you and I and anyone else who is in Christ by faith will be transformed to be resplendent and glorious. Receiving a transformed body that is fit for the dwelling of the eternal Spirit of God forever. A body that is imperishable. Not subject to sin or corruption. C.S. Lewis once said, if you caught a glimpse of such a heavenly, glorified human being, your first response would be to fall on your face and try and worship it. So glorious. So magnificent it is. It says that Jesus achieves this transformation in every believer. Verse 20. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power that enables him to subject all things. As the cosmic Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, with all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, that Lord, with that power, will transform your body to be like his glorious body. That is the outcome of the Christian life. Note here the the continuity it's a bit of a kind of a side issue, but kind of not as well. There's no, there's no sense of a destruction of the old and replaced with something totally different. Out with the old and in with the new. 
But what we're talking about here is a radical transformation. A real, physical, recognizable body with no remnant of sin, no remnant of fallenness or brokenness, completely perfect. This is our great hope, by the way, for those of us who have lost loved ones who are in Christ. Because we will recognize them one day as and when we see them. But this is the ultimate end that we are striving towards. The glorification of our bodies so that we may know Christ fully, even as we are fully known. To enjoy depths of communion and relationship and intimacy and fellowship with Jesus Christ that is utterly unimaginable in this life. That is what we have to look forward to. This has massive implications on how we view our suffering in this world. It has massive implications on on hope that we can have as Christians in times of trial. Those things are a sermon in themselves, books in themselves. But that is our end, that is our outcome of the Christian life. So in this text we've seen the substance of the Christian life, this straining struggling forward with every ounce of energy. We've seen the parody of the Christian life, those who call themselves Christians, that confess the right truth, and yet lives are totally opposite to what Paul is talking about. And we've seen in these final verses the outcome, this glorious, guaranteed outcome of the Christian life. You see, all these things are only possible because Christ Jesus laid aside his splendor and his glory. And he took on himself human flesh. He became humbled. He became one of us. He became weak and frail and undignified like us. He took our sin upon himself and he took that all the way to the cross so that eventually Ultimately, finally, we may be exalted with him. He became like us so that we might become like him. 